Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Russell Hargrave, Senior News Reporter. And I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Multimedia Reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. And in this episode, we'll be speaking to the Head of Fundraising at Islamic Relief to learn how the charity achieved its record-breaking fundraising figures, and we will find out what other charities can learn from its successful pivot to digital fundraising during the pandemic. And in the Good News Bulletin later, we'll be talking about the pledge by Jeff Bezos to donate most of his multi-billion dollar fortune to charity during his lifetime. But first, Russ, you've been out and about this week. Where have you been? Yep, Third Sector unshackled me from my desk, so I was able to go to the Association of Charitable Foundations annual conference Mm. just yesterday. Mm -hmm. That was Tuesday. Um, It's always good to be out and about. There are about 200 people there at the BMA Hall in central London, and I will say that it was extremely well catered, which as a journalist you always take extremely seriously. Um, (laughs) And you've, you've got a room full of people who they represent these charitable foundations that have normally a few million quid in in endowments, collectively billions and billions being spent by the sector across uh, the charity world as a whole. Um, So hugely important to hear what uh, what they're up to. Mm -hmm. A couple of things stood out, and I've been writing about that for Third Sector this week. Um, A really important sense that charitable foundations are a bit of a crossroads. Carol Mack, who's the chief executive of the ACF, um, talked about it being a pivotal moment where charitable foundations are going to have to get serious either about philanthropy that is driven by and for the communities that they're serving. So moving away from that more sort of old-fashioned model where philanthropists know best and communities are just happy to get the money, that's not really the way that philanthropy works anymore. Um, And Mac had a uh, warning, really, for her guests not to fall back to our comfort zone, as she said, Mm. Um, try and make sure that, that, that philanthropy is a bit more progressive and innovative. And were there any particularly noteworthy guests? So there was a special guest that we didn't even know as we turned up. You're thinking, oh God, I hope I can find some stories to file about all this. And then we heard that the new charities minister, Stuart Andrew, um, was going to appear and sort of say a few words at the end of the afternoon. The minister had some very warm words uh, for the sector. And he is himself a former charity worker. He was a fundraiser for a number of charities, which of course he made a point of mentioning to this audience to try and get them on side. Um, and I must admit, he, he came over very well indeed. Um, so a little bit of optimism about that as well. Mm-hmm. Very good. Now it's time to introduce our guest for this week, who we're very happy to have in the studio with us. Zia Salik is the head of fundraising at Islamic Relief, a charity he has worked at for over a decade. In that time, he's led many of the charity's fundraising campaigns to provide humanitarian assistance to people caught up in crises overseas from West Africa to Afghanistan. More recently, he's been involved in the growth of Islamic Relief's projects in the UK, and much of his work has focused on growing the charity's income through regional community networks. And 2021 was a record-breaking fundraising year for Islamic Relief, earning the charity the accolade of Large Charity of the Year at the Third Sector Awards in September. So hello, Zia, and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So firstly, I'd like to ask you, as the head of a highly successful fundraising team, are there any other big fundraising campaigns or events that you've taken inspiration from or wish that you'd come up with yourself? Yeah, um, I think that uh, um, 
giving me a bit more uh, probably kudos than I deserve because uh, obviously the award itself and everything that comes with it is a reflection of the whole team um, and I have colleagues and, and departments that have worked um, really hard over the last couple of years to kind of lead in different areas and sometimes with the title of head of fundraising I get the attention but uh, a lot you certainly of... get called into the studio <laughs> probably yeah, exactly um I think we've, um, as Islamic Relief, we've kind of grown organically in the way that we fundraise and we've adopted uh, different activities. I guess, you know, traditionally, you know, many people decades ago will have uh, visions of live aid and, and things like this, which um, kind of really get the masses together in one big gathering and, and the impact that has. And I think uh, those kind of mass participation type activities have inspired a lot of activities that we do. So we do um, a whole host of activities that range from very small engagements at a couple of hundred people to large TV um, fundraisers, which uh, run for you know seven or eight hours. Uh, much like you know, comic relief and some of the things that happen on on TV. Um, so we do that on different uh, channels, some on digital uh, platforms on the, online, and some on regular channels that are broadcast to satellite TV. But we also do uh, gatherings in person, uh, obviously pre-pandemic, and now we're kind of going back to that uh, norm, if you want to call it that, where we get uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of people together, whether it's uh, with an internationally renowned speaker or performer. Um, so yeah, we, we do take inspiration from some of the successful activities that I think we've all probably grown up with. Um, but there are lots of things that we do, which I think are uh, slightly different to the norm and uh, things that maybe haven't been done or are not done on a, on a large scale. And I guess yeah, we'll probably delve into some of that um, today. Absolutely. Well, I mean, last year as well was a real boon year for Islamic Relief, real success for fundraising, um, 38.6 million quid, a record, including 17.5 that was raised just during Ramadan alone. Yeah. And that's 80% up on what it was in 2018, which is growth that I think an awful lot of charities would dream of. Um, aside from the sort of mechanics that you mentioned, is, is there anything that you can put that down to that has led to such success? Yeah, I think um, we took a real kind of step back and looked at how we operate. I think it's um, really accounting for our relationship with our donors and really analysing what that looks like, uh, but also our approach internally. Uh, and I think reflecting internally how we operate, uh, the dynamics within the teams, as I mentioned, the different departments. Uh, I've been at Islamic Relief, as in my intro you mentioned, over a decade. So it's been 12 years. It's going to be 13 um, next year. Uh, and in that time, we've um, evolved in different ways. Um, I think we used to work slightly more siloed, where different departments, fundraising team would work in one separate way with their own kind of approach. The marketing team and digital teams would work in a slightly different way. Um, the media and comms teams would work on their focus areas. I think the biggest change internally is that we've really kind of changed the dynamic and the culture of the team. So we have a, a much closer bond between departments. We're a lot more communicating a lot more. We're a lot more collaborative now. Um, we have a one-team mentality. And I think the, the team structure and culture really makes a, a big difference. And I think, you know, sometimes you kind of just take it for granted that that's how things are. But you have to actually make a conscious effort. Um, to build those bonds between teams, even though you are part of one larger team, uh, sometimes you can be a little bit disunited. And I think that unity of purpose uh, has really made a difference internally. Uh, and I think from our external focus perspective, the end product or the end um, recipient of your efforts, it should be the focus and the center of why you operate and that it should always come first. And that was always the case with Islamic Relief. Our projects and our overseas teams and, and, and the recipients, the right holders of our work, 
who are always at the core and center of what we do. But sometimes it was at the cost of our donors. And although it's a righteous and, and the right probably approach, we have to also remember that without our donors, we can't serve those that we serve. Um, and, and actually bringing them to the center of our focus from a fundraising and engagement perspective so that we can reach more people, help more people and save more lives ultimately. Um, I think that shift in focus has also helped us massively, I think, internally. Yeah, and was that sort of precipitated by COVID as well in terms of the different ways that you were reaching your donors and communicating with them? I, I think um, we started the conversation long before COVID. Mm. Um, I think from 2016, 17, we started to think, okay, do we continue doing what we've done for the last, you know, 30 odd years as a charity? Um, I think the, the foundations that were set, you know, in the 90s and the noughties, um, or do we kind of start shifting our approach? And myself and, and our current director, we, we were of the mindset that our engagement with our donors and our relationships with our donors and stakeholders. So when I say donors and stakeholders, you know, it includes all of our supporters, our volunteers, those who are our ambassadors in the community who speak on our behalf to others, who open doors for us. We wanted to build more meaningful relationships with them. Um, so we started that process, I would say 2018 onwards. And when the pandemic hit, we'd actually built ourselves a really good runway into the pandemic in the sense that we had started to shift slightly away from events generally or not not away from events per se but the types of events and how we utilize those events so instead of holding an event and seeing who turns up to then ask them for funds we would build relationships and engage our donors and the community for a period leading up to an event so that we can invite them to that event where they can then participate and the journey that we took them on in that build-up and the information that we gave them that was a shift in our approach already. Um, so I had built a back-end team to support the fundraising team to produce things like proposals and reports and um, infographs that, you know, we have a project proposal from the team in the field, which is like 70, 80 pages long with all the, you know, analysis and, and needs assessments and everything that comes with it, which to a donor is just way too much. So we were producing these things ahead of events and, and things like this. So we kind of started to shift that approach already. Um, and when we got to the pandemic and lockdown, we were able to pivot very quickly in terms of the channels of communication, but actually how we were communicating and what we were communicating. We'd already done the work and we'd started on that. And I think um, that definitely did make a big difference for us. And c could we talk specifically about your pivot to digital fundraising, sort of why you went down that route? I mean, obviously, circumstances <laughs> yeah. dictated and not being able to have in-person meetings, but also yeah. tapping into um, the demographic of yeah. your of yeah. your donors and of the British Muslim community more broadly. Yeah, I think um, if you look at the uh, the census data, which is as out of date as it's going to get, <laughs> I think. But the last census in in two thousand eleven. Um, the stats for the Muslim community showed something like 84% were under the age of 45, uh, which is huge. That's enormous, right? yeah. Um, uh, I think something like 43% were under the age of 25. Um, so a massive demographic of kind of millennials and Gen Z, um, everyone digitally savvy, everybody on connected online. Uh, and that means that now the census data will show a huge amount in that that category of 25 to 45 year old age gap, which will be, you know, the professionals or those in business or those working, etc. So we we knew very early on 
that our engagement online had to be better probably than the mainstream charity our counterparts you know um, other members of the DEC when I when I meet with um, fundraising directors from the DEC and we have these conversations in fact I'm, you know I'm meeting some colleagues this afternoon from other charities from the DEC just to knowledge share and learn from each other and what's quite evident is that the the demographic and donor base from other charities in the sector are not the same as the Muslim community um, and so because of that massive population that is you know under the age of 45 and I guess you know now it's 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 aging slightly our digital engagement had to be better and kind of more advanced than some of our counterparts so we've been investing in our online engagements and our focus in digital marketing and digital engagement for quite some time and I think when we went into lockdown um, we had the benefit of having a fairly robust online presence our social media engagement was relatively good uh, and it's you know hopefully increasing and improving <laughs> um, since then but we'd kind of established really effective ways to engage our community peer-to-peer fundraising has been huge for us uh, over the last few years we'd kind of invested quite heavily into that prior to the pandemic because because we have such a young audience and a young demographic who are used to giving online there's a strong trust with online giving and we have a lot of advocates and volunteers who not only do they come and support events but they support our fundraising efforts whenever there's a crisis or an emergency the first thing the volunteers do is set up a fundraising page and share it with their network so we've kind of been inculcating this culture within our supporter base for quite some time so really when we went into lockdown we were able to just direct a lot of our offline support um, to our digital platforms. Um, and that really helped us, I guess, you know, um, grow very quickly during the pandemic. And you mentioned extra investment in a couple of different things, both peer-to-peer and that kind of social media presence. And Lucinda and I were talking earlier this week about the reputation that your charity has for being a very, very kind of smart, savvy social media charity. Um, how much convincing did your bosses need from you to, to make that investment? Because I know wringing money out of finance people can be challenging as well. No, we're, um, we're very fortunate in that. I, I think part of our success has been our agility to try things. One of our previous head of uh, kind of digital engagement, one thing he used to do is he, he used to ask for a pot of money every year, which was for trial and error. And we're like, we're going to try things. It's not a huge amount of money, but we're going to test different ideas and techniques and if they don't take off, you know, no one's going to get their mm. <laughs> hands wrapped over it. But if it does take off, then we've got a product that we can then invest more in and, and grow further. We had an innovation fund that was open to all staff. This is what I think we should try. This is what it will cost. And this is what I project. And it was really a panel of people from across the organization who would then vote to say, OK, we're going to give this idea, you know, 5,000 pounds or 10,000, whatever it might be, and we'll trial it out. They could essentially apply to this pot of money that we have every year. It could be anyone in any department at any level within the organization to say, I've got an idea. And some of the things that have come from that have been phenomenal. I mean, we've got a, a couple of real success stories that have come from our volunteers, campaigns that um, literally just sat around the table. Someone comes up with something and then they've become national campaigns that we've rolled out across the organization because they've worked so well in, in, in that area. Um, so I think um, being innovative and kind of trying things out has been really important. But the leadership, I think, at Islamic Relief at the moment, uh, we're fortunate that we're all kind of on the same page. And I think that makes a big difference. Um, mm. You know, we spend more time uh, trying things and doing things rather than discussing and agreeing. 
So I think um, there's a lot of trust within the teams to say, you know, we've got good people. We know that they're not going to waste uh, our resources. They're going to do the best for the organization. And um, that trust, uh, I think, you know, it puts pressure on like we I put pressure on myself and I know my colleagues uh, do the same that like I've really got to think this through if I'm going to try this because you know there's a lot of trust in me uh, and I think we all kind of feel that same sense of shared trust amongst ourselves so the getting approvals hasn't been really a challenge for us and I think you know we've of course there's safeguards and uh, things in place to ensure that nothing uh, kind of gets away too too quickly without being in control but yeah generally that that's not been really part of the challenge that we faced. And could you perhaps give one or two examples of some really successful, innovative ideas that came out of the Staff Challenge Fund? One of my favourite campaigns at Islamic Relief is one actually that came from a volunteer. It was a volunteer idea. It's kind of been mentioned before, but I love the idea and I love the, the campaign because it serves so many purposes. I don't know if you've heard of it. We have something called the Cake Campaign uh, at Islamic Relief. And this was 10 years ago now. Um, we were sat around the table and um, we were planning our year and we were planning our activities for the Ramadan campaign and um, we were saying you know the days are long now this was in the summer it was Ramadan was in August back then and um, the days were so long we usually do iftar galas where people come to break the fast and then we fundraise and they have dinner and it's it was really great. But because the days were so long, people were just like, oh, it's so late. I really don't want to kind of go out to a dinner. Plus, I've been fasting all day. I'm tired. Um, so the, the numbers were dwindling. And that year we were like, OK, what do we do that's different? So we, uh, one of the guys uh, said, how about we uh, sell cakes? Um, we'll basically buy them or we'll speak to one of our supporters. We've quite a few of our uh, donors and supporters are in the industry um, who could maybe either give us them for free or at cost and then we can mark them up and sell them for charity and we were like all right let's you know why not so it was I remember we went to a, a very mainstream grocery store which I won't mention and bought one of those I think 10 12 pound old Nokia type phones those yeah. very basic brick I phones. remember them well yeah yeah <laughs> So we bought one of them and we, we we bought a SIM card and we put it in and it was comp- all run by the volunteers and we said, okay, um, we put a post out on social media and we said, order a cake. It was only in, in um, Bradford at the time because that's where it started, just for in the local area. Uh, this phone number, send your orders to this number and we'll deliver it to you on Sunday. And the, one of the volunteers was like, I'll, I'll, I'll do the Excel sheet. Um, so give me the phone. So, so he took the phone. The next morning, he had 423 text messages or something <laughs> ridiculous. Like this was, it didn't even, the phone didn't even have WhatsApp. So he was like, oh my God, this is crazy. So then we went and bought another phone and then we added a second number and that blew up. And then within a space of a week, we had four of these phones and we had eight volunteers and then we set up a makeshift call center. They were all there with the laptops entering all these orders in. We'd spoken to a supplier who very kindly had offered to, to donate some cakes. And then when he saw the numbers, he was like, well, I'm not sure if I can give that many. <laughs> so so we, we'd agreed something with them to, to organize. And then by the end of the month, these kids, uh, I say kids, I mean, they were all like, you know, college, university students. They'd sold 8,000 cakes. In, in, in a space of four weeks and then we were like okay this is crazy and it was completely driven by our social media and I guess it goes back to our demographic everybody's connected uh, Facebook back then was massive and the algorithm allowed us to reach people I mean I know that's changed drastically over the years but we reached a huge huge amount of people and what was what was amazing about that campaign is when we did some analysis afterwards we found that 
from those 8,000 orders, I mean, there was 8,000 cakes, but there was about 4,000 orders. Some people bought more than one, obviously. Um, and um, from those, around half were people who'd never donated to us before. Mm. So we'd reached a completely new audience. Um, and then it, fast forward six to 12 months later, and th those new donors had donated over £100,000 to our charity through other campaigns, through our regular kind of engagement. So we just thought this is such a beautiful engagement thing. I mean, I guess it made it even more impactful because people were fasting. So they'd get a cake in the afternoon. It would be a box with an Islamic relief branded all over and, and it'd sit on your table and you're sat staring at it and waiting <laughs> for the sun to set. <laughs> and I was just like, this is just priceless. Fast forward 10 years. And it's become a regular campaign every Ramadan. Um, we're selling 30,000 plus cakes. It's, it's still entirely run by volunteers across the country. Volunteers turn up on Sundays, hundreds of them, actually thousands now. Um, they collect them from the collection point in every city and they'll go and deliver them to people. And there's like a, there's a whole system in place now. There's an online ordering system and there's a whole verification system. And it's raising, you know, three, four hundred thousand pounds every Ramadan. And this was just, you know, came out of a, a conversation that we had where somebody just had an idea. So With a lone baker who <laughs> turned quite panicked when he saw how well it was taking off. <laughs> I mean, again, the pandemic, during the pandemic, because there was a shortage of ingredients and staff and workforce and all the different, you know, that was one of the challenges. We had to reduce the cap because they couldn't meet the demand. But yeah. One thing that you place a heavy emphasis on, I believe, is a relationship-based fundraising approach. Um, how do you build a connection and what strategies have worked between your donors and your receivers? I think for, for many years, we've just taken it for granted that um, whenever there's a crisis or an emergency, our donor base step forward and, and support us and they have, and they always do, whatever the crisis is. So I volunteered for Islamic Relief for about 10 years before I joined as a member of staff. And I remember the, the, the earthquake in Haiti um, where, you know, it was obviously devastating. I have such vivid memories because it was one of the campaigns that I was so heavily involved in as a volunteer. And I had hardly heard of Haiti before. Um, I'm from the north uh, of England and I kind of lived a very sheltered life. But we heard about this crisis in Haiti and, and Islamic Relief was the first organization on the ground in Haiti. And most of our donor base hadn't heard of where Haiti was. You know, you know it's this tiny place. Um, so, but when we told them there's a there's a crisis and people are in need, the the support just came in, in the droves, and and that's been consistently the case ever since. Whatever the crisis has been, and uh, of course they have trust in us to deliver their support to the people that are in need. But often we just move from one crisis to the next. And we don't have enough time to even process um, the impact that we've had. And, and we certainly don't have time to go back to that same donor and say, you know, your support has really changed lives. I mean, within the Muslim community, and I think um, Islamically generally, the concept of giving in charity is so kind of intertwined with our faith that people give whenever there is a need without even thinking about it. But I think over the years, we've really consciously made the effort to build that relationship with our donors in a much more meaningful way to say that yes whenever there's a crisis we need your support but we also want you to know the impact of that support we don't want you to just hear on the news that x number of people have been affected and x number of people have been helped but we want you to know the name of that person in that um, situation we want you to know the lives that have been saved and of course we can't do that on a one-to-one -one basis in person with everyone because it's just impossible um, but we are fortunate that we do have the resources 
to be able to filter and segment and kind of identify people who've given to certain appeals. And then, you know, we can automate that engagement with them to, to feed back to them to say, this is what has happened. These, are, I mean, we have media teams on the ground, we have reports coming in, we have case studies. And for years, they've just been piling up in, well, I was going to say filing cabinets, but in shared drives somewhere. <laughs> um, so it was really about kind of breaking that down. And to be honest, we're still not doing it to the level that we need to. We were only just, I would say, at the very early stages of that journey. But then from an offline perspective, which I guess is my area of focus, actually engaging our donors and, and supporters in a way that, you know, really makes them feel a part of that journey with us. Because we are fortunate on the inside to see the reports and see the case studies and see the impact and often visit the projects as well. Uh, and uh, I've been very fortunate to see a lot of the work that we do. But our donors don't uh, always get that same insight. So I think being conscious of that and not just seeing donors as uh, people who we go to and we need support, but also people that we go to when we uh, celebrate the success and the difference and the impact that we've been able to make. And presumably that's become easier as your UK projects have increased and probably are going to continue, right, in the current yeah. challenging economic climate. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we've obviously, since 1984, have been uh, an organisation that's kind of built its expertise on Emergency response um, started in, in Sudan, Darfur, and, and, and then ever since then, every major crisis and disaster we've, we've been involved in. But it's obviously the, the need in the UK has been growing and becoming more and more obvious. Our domestic program in the UK is actually coming to 10 years now. We started in 2013 uh, when we started our scoping exercise, when we said, look, we have a duty to our neighbours, we have a duty to people in the UK who are in need. And we've been doing work over the last 10 years supporting projects in the UK. But the pandemic has exacerbated this whole crisis to new heights. The need is through the roof. Uh, the number of people that are kind of coming forward um, that need support is just beyond comprehension. And I think really getting involved in a lot of these projects myself has has kind of brought home how much of a need there is. Because even, even now, I think we're still oblivious to how bad the situation is here in the UK. And supporting different projects, whether it's food banks or whether it's um, you know young people or victims of domestic abuse, whatever it might be, a lot of our donors are, are more and more conscious of the need here. I mean, a lot of people are feeling the pinch themselves. Um, well, the Muslim population is disproportionately affected, isn't it? Actually, there was um, uh, something called the Muslim Census done, released just, I think, last week, which said that uh, one in five people from the Muslim community have had to go to a food bank, uh, which is, you know, it's huge. But of course, just generally, I mean, our work around the world and in the UK, uh, we serve all communities. We're not a Muslim charity for Muslims. It's, you know, we serve everyone. And a lot of the recipients of support from, from Islamic Relief in the UK and non Muslims, of course, there are Muslims as well. But I think with our donor base being more conscious of it, because everyone's hypersensitive to that situation now, Islamic Relief taking uh, a strong stance on on supporting the community in the UK, um, I think it's an important one. I think all organisations that work overseas, I think there needs to be some element of focus in the UK. For us, it's it's a strategic priority. And that's one of the things that we we, we also took stock of in 2019 when we reviewed our um, strategy and our approach for the next you know five years that of course fundraising for our project is is key 
But the second most important uh, priority for Islamic Relief right now is work in the UK. Um, so we'll definitely be increasing our, our footprint and, and our support for projects here. And last question. You've talked very passionately, I think, about 12 years of working um, Islamic Relief and everything that you've achieved and the charity's been able to achieve. If you had just one bit of advice that you might offer to somebody just starting out, trying to raise some funds for something they cared about, maybe a faith charity, maybe a non-faith charity, what, what would your top tip be? I think it's, it's, so, it's so cliche, right? So um, you always hear about people um, talking about their why. I think if you have a strong passion for something, and you genuinely believe in something, I think everything else just falls into place very easily. I never imagined that I'd ever work in the charity sector. Um, you know, I worked in, in different industries, and my background is something completely different. And if at the time that I joined, I only had an intention of working for the charity for like six months, and I'm here 13 years on. <laughs> so I think um, that's a testament to when you have passion and love for something, everything else falls into place. I think... For me, the thing that keeps me going and the thing that has kept me at Islamic Relief, even though there's so many things that I probably thought I wanted to do, is number one, seeing the impact. I've, I've said this to so many of the people that if I thought there was another organization that was doing the work that Islamic Relief does better, I'd probably jump ship. For me, I've seen the impact of the efforts that we do. Sometimes it's exhausting, especially in the major campaigns like Ramadan or any other campaign. We have several key campaigns throughout the year. You're working long hours, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're away from family, and you think, you know, this is just too much. But then when you actually see the impact it's having, the lives that it's saving, the lives that it's transforming, all the tiredness and all of that kind of falls by the wayside. But I think having that passion and having that love for it and also knowing what you're doing. So I don't think you can fundraise or volunteer for any organization without actually knowing the product and the project inside out. I think you can do it for, for a bit because um, there are different motivations for whatever you do, whether it's work or volunteer, whatever it might be, to pass time, to pick up skills, to earn a living, whatever it might be. But you can only sustain that for so long if you don't actually buy into and have a passion for the work itself. And I think that's the key thing. I think um, find your passion, um, find something that you love. You'll always want to excel. And I think that's something that we've been really fortunate about that one of the values that we really see as an important one for Islamic Relief is one of excellence. So whatever we're doing, whether it's an event, whether it's a project in the field, whether it's an idea or like, we want to do it with excellence. We want to do it in the best possible way. And I think you can only do that if you have a love and a passion for it. So I would say that's probably the most important element. Uplifting words to, to <laughs> end on. Uh, Zia Salik, Head of Fundraising at Islamic Relief. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank it's you. been a pleasure. Now for the Good News Bulletin, featuring everything from the positive to the downright strange stories we have spotted in the sector. Lucinda, what's the story this week? Well, my news is that Amazon founder Jeff Bezos plans to give away most of his wealth during his lifetime to fight causes including climate change and supporting people who can unify humanity in the face of political and social divisions. And this would be no small sum. As the fourth richest person in the world, Bezos' net worth is $124 billion. Oof. He said during a recent interview with CNN that the hard part is figuring out how to give his money away in a levered way and that he is now working on building the capacity to be able to do it. 
Well, he's not wrong as a regular philanthropy watcher. You know, giving away money is not easy if you want it to be really impactful. And, of course, that's especially true when it's our old friend corporate philanthropy. Because mm-hmm. one question we won't be able to answer for a while, I guess, is how much good is this money going to do? Potentially billions on the table going to good causes, but a billion spent well versus a billion wasted is a huge difference in, in what it can do for people's lives. We'll have to wait and see how good he actually is at all this. We watch this space. Yeah, I'll be putting in a, a call to his press people immediately. <laughs> That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another episode. So if you have enjoyed this one, make sure that you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast to be the first to know all about it. And if you have any thoughts on our podcast, such as what topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, then we are running a survey. You can find the link to the survey in the show notes, and it should take you no more than five minutes to complete. We'd really love to hear your thoughts. But for now, I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Russell Hargrave. Thank you to our guest, Zia Sleek. Join us again next week.